We've been talking about worship for a pretty long time now, and we're actually getting close to the end of this series. It's a massive subject, but um, really felt like the Lord's been just pushing us along in it. And so you'll notice that at the beginning of every one of these messages, I review the educators among us are happy about this. The others are not, and that's okay. Um, we're talking about just who, what, when, where, why, what is worship. And we started by saying, why do we worship? And it's because God is glorious. That His beauty, it's just like seeing a beautiful sunset, you have to say something. And so worship is the reasonable response to God's beauty, His majesty, all the things that are meant by His glory. And what do we mean by worship? What do we actually do? It's glorifying God. Well, it, it's this idea of, Ale, good to see you, bro. All right, missionary from way out. Okay, come on, Ollie. Glad you're here. Reflecting back to God, the glory he's baked into us, it's embodying his glory. We are the image, as humans, we're the image of God. So to glorify God is literally to be human, to be the image of God, reflecting back to him. But it's also becoming like Jesus because the image of God's been damaged by sin in us. So... We say worship is glorifying God and becoming like Jesus. It's embodying and declaring God's glory, but we have to be restored into that. We have to be restored into that. And so then we say, how do we worship? It's, the, the, it's through sacrifice. It's giving away the surrender of my entire existence to God's glory. That's what Tim um, Cameron was saying to us. They're about just all these areas of his life. He's trying to say, Lord, will you bring those in alignment with your beauty and glory? All the way down to sugar addiction. <laughs> Why? Because he wants the glory of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord coming out of him and embodied. Who do we worship? God alone. Any worship forms us. So if we worship someone other than God, the one who made us, the one who gives us glory, we get deformed. So nothing else is worthy of our worship. Where do we worship? We talked about we worship in our bodies. This is based on Romans 12. So wherever our bodies are, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we worship God. But also we worship in Christ's body. Christ's body is, means the assembled body of people that are carrying the Holy Spirit. And in this unique location, that we, we worship God together. John talked about it. That's why we come together on Sundays uh, and other times is to worship as Christ's body. So when do we do that? Well, we can do it anytime you're in your body. <laughs> anytime you find that you're in your body, you can worship the Lord. And it's appropriate to do so. And in rhythms, we looked at this last week that both in Scripture and throughout church history, it's just been the normal practice of the church to in rhythms come together as Christ's body. It's, and the rhythms are so important because we could just say, right, we, we've got we to have these times for all of us to come together. If you don't schedule that out, have you ever noticed it's hard to gather people if nobody knows when or where you're supposed to meet? If that's new to any of you, you this is why you have dinner with nobody. <laughs> you just got to pick a time and a place, and that just helps a ton. So, 
What I'm going to talk about today, and it's fascinating even how the service has gone today, is how do we worship together? How do we do this thing when we gather as Christ's body? What's supposed to go on during this time? And there's three things I, I, I hope, this is going to be an odd sermon, just so you know. Um, I'm going to take you through some stuff you may or may not be interested in knowing. Um, but I actually really feel like we really need to know this for at least three reasons. One is for a sense of belonging. We are part of a 2,000-year history of a family. The, uh, there are psychologists who talk about family systems theory, and, and the guys who are really into it say to really understand who you are, you have to go back three, four, and even up to seven generations to know why you think and act the way you do. We, we, we think we're original. We're not. We're the product of generations. The, the phrase that Pete Scazzaro said is, what, what is it about Grandpa? John, you're not even paying attention, bro. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I need the cue on Pete Scazzaro, and you're looking at a phone. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he, did, he was listening, actually. That was pretty impressive. Jesus is in your heart, but Grandpa's in your bones. That makes sense. Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Some of you are just traumatized by how hard I was on John. Uh, he can handle it, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love these guys. I, I, I love coming to work every day because I get to be with them. Another one is perspective. We need perspective on how we worship together. Why is that? I bet the oldest person in the room is less than a century old here. That's my guess. If there's anybody 100 years old, please raise your hand. We're going to honor you for just being here. Okay. Um, we've got a 90? What? Where are the longs? You guys here? There we go. And they just might get up and dance in the middle of the service. I love this. But even at that, that's less than 1% of church history. There's a lot that's gone on of people deeply connecting with Jesus in ways that are the same and very different than us. And it's important for us to know that. It's important for us to have that perspective. And I want to issue a little bit of a challenge. And, and something I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through over time just, over just, just some sampling of the way God's people have gathered and worshiped God over history. Okay, so we'll start in the New Testament, we'll go through history. The challenge I want to issue is when you think about what it means to come together and worship Jesus, how does what you think compare with what we're talking about? Does that make sense? How does what you, what you think it should be or what you prefer it to be compare to the Bible and church history? Sound good? Good. I'm going to occasionally shout loudly because it's so warm in here just to, you ever seen the preachers do that? They're like, oh, there's just like, I remember that's usually when I woke up, you know, uh. <laughs> so we've been basing this whole series off of this wonderful verse in Romans 12, 1. 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this is, we're going to get to this last phrase. It's taken us a few months to get to this phrase. We're going to talk about what is true and proper worship. To help us understand, we've we got to know what does this word mean? And the word in Greek is latreia. Uh, just because I talk about Greek doesn't know I more, know more than you. What it means is English is a lazy language. So we use a lot of w- words that don't have a lot of nuance, whereas Greek's got a little more nuance to it. So this word, latria, could be t- translated either as worship or as service. So you might notice that there's some actually Eng- English translations that say, this is your true and proper service. Either way, it's good. Why? Because what's baked into the idea of worship here is serving. Does that make sense? So there's a related term, litrogeo, that's also used in the New Testament. It's also used in the Greek Old Testament that is translated almost all the time service, but it's also where we get the word liturgy. Liturgy. And what, so what these words, litreo and litrogeo, they're acts of service in worship. When you hear about liturgy, liturgy doesn't just mean, uh, uh, you know, one of the fancy services where they're wearing robes and there's smells and bells. <laughs> liturgy is any act of worship in service. So we have a liturgy at Believer's Church. Did you know that? The liturgy is the acts that we have planned out. And if you've been here long enough, you kind of know what's going to happen next, right? You have to be able to know at some level what's going to happen next, or you can't do it together. Does that make sense? It's like starting a race. That, that There's a reason they have a gun that starts the race. You go now, because <laughs> we're going to try to do it together. And so, but what I want to point out here is this idea, is that All of the language about coming together to worship has to do with us offering service to God. Do you know we don't gather for us? We gather to serve Jesus. We gather to serve Jesus together. And here's what's so cool about that. We see in the Old Testament that the priests were part of the temple and they would do all the liturgeo work of serving because they were doing it on behalf of everybody to serve the Lord. And now through Jesus, because the temple is in Jesus and it's us, now we're the priests that can go into the Holy of Holies and serve Jesus in His presence. Now, phenomenal things happen to us because we're in His presence. But, but already this should start to mess a little bit with our definition of what it means to worship together. We assemble to serve Jesus. We assemble to serve Jesus. And it's through acts. Why do we have certain acts? For instance, sing a song or do this or that. Because we're trying to coordinate with each other to say, let's all do this thing together. Does that make sense? There's something unique about singing a song together. We can all say the same words at the same time. So liturgy has been part of what it means to to gather and worship God since the first second that there were Christians on the earth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this real fast. Here's a liturgy in the New Testament. Here's a little summary. You can see it in Acts 2.42. 
Basically, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, what does that mean? Well, apostles' teaching, if we look throughout the New Testament, Paul says, don't give up when you assemble together publicly reading the scriptures out loud. And I'm going to go fast through these because there's a lot here. Um, But you can get the slides when we send the email. We can see some creedal, creed statements. That like 1 Corinthians 15, you could see that Paul says some things that it's like, oh, we can see they probably said this out loud together because it's, it's got a standard feel to it. We could see that there was teaching and preaching. Also, that there was singing. And what's interesting in that, in the, both these phrases, they're psalms. They would actually sing Bible scripture, psalms, like the scriptures. Or hymns that some of them written, like one, some people think that maybe Philippians 2, 1 through 11 was actually a hymn itself. Um, and then from the Spirit, there might have been spontaneous songs, spiritual songs, we don't know. And then we see in 1 Corinthians that then there was prophecy and tongues and gifts of the Spirit that, that uh, I'm calling this all teaching because it's like the Word kind of stuff. And then there was fellowship. Sharing of spiritual gifts. We got these lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. If you want to look at what might have been a New Testament service, just read 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. You can see sort of what was going on in, in probably in the church in Corinth. That's fascinating. Because um, mostly he's correcting it. <laughs> he's, he's saying in chapter 13, come on guys, you're all gifted, awesome. If you're not loving one another, you are annoying. Tinkling symbol, you know, I mean, that's just basically what Paul's saying. If you guys aren't loving one another, I don't care how many prophecies you got, I don't care how many teachings you got, it doesn't matter. You're, you're here to love one another. Okay. Collection of offerings. Paul talks about the first day of the week to collect finances. Kiss of peace. Interesting. I'm not suggesting we renew this, but, you know, whatever. Foot washing. Anointing with oil. Laying on of hands, and we see it in just prayer or for the reception of the Spirit or even for ordination. So these are acts, acts of service done in worship. Breaking of the bread, that's simply a Eucharistic meal. Does everybody know what Eucharist is? Eucharist is the Greek word just to give thanks, thanksgiving, which is what we call in our tradition taking communion, the body and the blood of the Lord, doing what Jesus said, hey, remember me by doing this. We see that this was a consistent thing that was done in fellowship. And then there was prayer, public prayer. What's so cool, 1 Timothy 2, did you know that the Christian posture in the first centuries for prayer was this? We've actually got pictures of it. That that's what raising of hands was about. It was one of the intercessory prayer together. We pray. Um, and, And we see the same kind of thing Jesus talking about in Matthew 6. So, here's, here's, uh, I'm gonna say what could have a New Testament church service look like. Here's what you need to know. Nobody knows. Nobody really knows what a New Testament service was like. You read all the scholars, that kind of thing, the historians, we just don't have that much emph- evidence to know. And I think God's the smartest person ever. Cause we would probably shoot each other over this, right? However, it was supposed to be done this way. He gives us principles, it looks like. But there's a fun little booklet. If you, you can get this by a guy named Robert Banks, who's a scholar, uh, New Testament and, and church historian guy. 
that he puts together uh, what it could have looked like if you had one in Rome. And so this is sort of the way Banks looks at it, that you'd meet in a, in a home, likely a Sunday night, you walk in the door, you would have a kiss of peace. That's a cultural thing. Then, you know, you, you know some, if you go to Northeast, that happens. I didn't know that. I, I married a girl from New Jersey. I didn't know there was a kissing thing. The way I met her grandmother was she was coming at me. I could tell she wanted to kiss. I didn't know which side to go, which side to go, which side to go. And we smashed noses together and my eyes watered. That's how I met her grandmother. I'm from Iowa, man. I don't know what to do with this. We don't do these things. <laughs> kiss of peace. And then they'll have a meal. But the meal would be in, embedded in the meal was the Eucharist was, hey guys, as we're eating this, let's pray for a second. Remember, as we break this bread, Jesus' body was broken. As we drink this cup, his blood was shed for us. And there'd be some prayers before and after to mark what's going on. Then, if they had access to some of the apostles' writings, not everybody did, but if they had access, maybe read some of it and discuss a little bit. And then sing some songs together. Um, and then some of them might have psalms access to it on, on, on papyrus or something, or just something memorized. Maybe recite an Old Testament passage. They might have a teaching, maybe more than one person teach, sharing of needs and prayer. Spiritual gifts, share with one another. We see that all through 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, that people will pray for one another. There's gifts of healing. There's words of knowledge and discernment and wisdom and things like that that would be shared and then sharing of material resources as needed, and then a song at end. And so that's maybe, this is a historical reconstruction. Now, one question I want to ask is when you think about what a church service, a Sunday service should be like, how does what you expect look similar or different to this? Just think about it for a second. We're going to do this a few more times. Okay, so again, this is a reconstruction, so it's like a a theory, but here's something fun. This is from the year 155 AD, and it's actually written by this guy named Justin Martyr, who who was trying to explain, he was defending the Christian faith because the Roman Empire was not into the Christian faith for the most part. Went through some periods of real big persecution, then they'd leave us alone, then they'd persecute us. And so Justin Martyr, when he was trying to say, because some people thought when they said we're, we're um, eating the body and blood of Jesus, they thought we were cannibals, for real. And because we wouldn't worship other gods besides Jesus, they called us atheists. We were known as atheists to start in the Roman Empire. Isn't that funny? Um, but Justin Martyr said, oh, here's actually what we do when we gather. He said, on the day called Sunday, an assembly is held in one place of all who live in town or country, and the records of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as time allows. Then, when the reader's finished, the president in a discourse admonishes and exhorts us to imitate these good things. Then we all stand up together, send up prayers. And as we said before, when we've finished praying, bread and wine and water are brought up, and the president, not the president of Rome, this is the, the guy leading the meeting, Likewise, sends up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability, and the people assent, saying the amen. And the elements over which thanks have been given are distributed, and everyone partakes, and they are sent through the deacons to those who are not present. And the wealthy who so desire give what they wish, 
as each chooses. And what is collected is deposited with the president. And he helps orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in need and those in prison and strangers sojourning among us. In a word, he takes care of all those who are in need. And we assemble together on Sunday because it's the first day on which God transformed darkness and matter and made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead on that day. For they crucified him the day before Saturday. I don't know why I didn't say Friday. And the day after Saturday, which is Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have presented to you also for your consideration. So isn't that interesting? This is saying this is exactly what they're doing. So they had... This is basically just what I just said. And there's another guy named Tertullian who's around that same time who basically outlines a service just very, very like Justin Martyr. So here's what I ask you is look at this. And when you think about what worship's supposed to look like when we're together, how does this compare? Just think about it for a second. Okay, I'm going to keep on moving. You can get these slides. Now, something really huge happened in, in around 325. Does anybody know what it happened? Yes. First of all, thank you for raising your hand. That was incredible. I appreciate that. Council of Nicaea. Why, why do we have the Council of Nicaea, somebody? Yeah, so the emperor of Rome became a Christian, we think. It's, you know, so, and so Christianity was no longer a persecuted religion. Um, and, and so it, before to be Christian, it was, it, was, it was not easy. Because there was times when Rome wasn't given that hard times. There's other times that they'll come and take everything you have, man. Uh, there's a guy named Diocletian who was just vicious, would actually pay people to turn in Christians. So, okay, sweet, you know. Um, so, but what happened when Constantine legalized Christianity, it meant the world is yours, Christian. And in fact, it's a good idea to be Christian if you want to be the emperor's friend. Does it make sense? So, up to this point, we've been meeting in homes Pretty much, there was a couple buildings toward the late 300s, uh, but, but they kind of got, or I mean, excuse me, late 200s, but they got torn down. But, but, but what ended up happening is Rome had a bunch of buildings, and so they decided to repurpose one called the Roman Basilica. And the reason they didn't use the, t- the temples for the, the idol dudes is because those are temples were made to keep people out. <laughs> Isn't that funny? But, but Christianity is like, no, we want to get with Jesus together. So they use these things called basilicas that were used for all kinds of different reasons, but typically could be like a court of law. And so you come in from the left there, and there's that stage, and something they called the apse back there, and the, the, the lawyer or the judge, excuse me, would sit at the very end of that part. So Christians said, okay, we'll use that building. And so the bishop would sit here, when the elders would sit around him, they called it the bishop's throne. That's messing with our American sensibilities already, right? He had a throne. Um, Then they put an altar here. This is what an altar is in Christian history. It's where you put the body and blood of Jesus. Why? Because he's the sacrifice. 
We don't, we don't go to the temple anymore to offer lambs and things like that. Jesus is the one sacrifice for all. And so the, every time we assemble as the body, as the temple, we remember this one sacrifice made to be able to let us get into the Holy of Holies. And then there's a little spot where there'd be a pulpit. And here's where the congregation would stand. For 1,000 years, there were no church pews. 1,000 years the church stood during service. And the bishop sat while he preached. What happened? What has happened? This is not right. So, here's what a liturgy looked like. Here's one of the things you'll notice. The more people you get in a room, the more organized you have to get. Because it's hard. Have you ever... You go to dinner with two people... It's not so bad. Try it with eight. Just deciding where you're going to eat, it's it's a hassle, right? And then how to get there. Who's driving? You just have to make more decisions the more people you have in a room. And so what happened was that the liturgy had to get tightened up. And so we had a lot of evidence of what was going on. So that there'd be two parts. There'd be the Word, and then there'd be be the, uh, the Eucharist. So the Word, we have some prayers. A cool intro while the priest is coming in. They'll be singing songs. The Kyrie and Gloria are both prayers. Priest would greet. A collect is another way of saying a prayer. Psalmody, which is singing psalms. Then read an epistle. Some Bible there. Acclamations, probably a creed, the gospel. And the Dominus Vobiscum. Isn't that fun? The Lord be with you and also with you. That's, that, that's really all that means. Then they do the Eucharist. Prepare the table, which is that altar. Then you have some songs, some prayers. They'd say, recite the Lord's Prayer together. There'd be a blessing of peace. They'd take communion, then the collect, that's a prayer after it, dismiss and bless. Now, this was going on for, I don't know, 700 years. This, when they, we got together as bro- brothers and sisters. So just take a look at it, and like we've been doing, when you think about how we should worship together, how does this compare to what you think about? Okay, I'm going to move on. Uh, and again, all these slides will be available for anybody who's really wanting to dig deep in that. So here, here's, the, here's the next um, 900 years. And obviously, I am making massive generalizations. If there are any professional historians in the, in the room, you are dying right now. I understand it, but I'm pretty sure there are none. So... <laughs> so that same liturgy continued... For a long, long time. And this, this period is what we call the Middle Ages. Uh, where, you know, you get... <laughs> Monty Python's Holy Grail. That's where that all comes from. Is this time in history. Not really, but sort of. Okay. So, here's what happened, though. What, when, when, when Christianity was legalized and it became popular and even expedient to be Christian... Things got kind of wonky. And so, so priests and bishops, meaning well, would emphasize, dude, this, this Eucharist table is the body and blood of Jesus for forgiving your sins. That means you've got to live a certain way. That, but it, it, the message boomeranged. And what ended up happening is people started to get scared to take the Eucharist. 
to like they didn't want to accidentally drop a blood of, of, of uh, just a little bit of Jesus' blood on the ground. Like, what would that mean? I mean it, and so people started only taking communion like once or twice a year because they were scared of it. And we saw something happening in kind of, the, kind of a distance between congregation and, and the clergy. So the altar, over time, got moved all the way, completely away from everybody in the sanctuary. And when the bishop would do it, he'd face away from the congregation. And then there, you, may be, you may be in an old church that saw this. They, have, they put screens in. Because it's kind of like the Holy of Holies, where they got the body and blood of the Lord. And so there's these screens. Anybody seen that in like old churches in Europe? They got these huge screens so that it would protect the congregation between where the priest was and where the congregation was. And this is where, in the 1300s, the pews showed up. <laughs> now, here's what's fascinating about that is... It marked the most passive the congregation had ever been. The most uninvolved. Yeah. You hear me, John? (laughs) Put your phone down. I'm talking, man. (laughs) To make it even worse, they were doing the, 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 the service in Latin, which most people didn't speak. Because for a while it worked out. For a while it worked out because Latin was used all over the empire. But, you know, uh, one, one, one uh, historian I read said that our structures always outlast our meanings. So in, in Christian liturgy, our structures tend to outlast our meaning. And so, so what you had here was just people that were just really disconnected from worship. It's the very opposite, if you think, of what we mean by liturgy as an act of worship together. Does that make sense? So we, you, most of you guys probably know that in the 1500s, this is where everything blew up. So we call the Reformation, that people were like, this isn't working. And so what had in the West was only Roman Catholic. But we just think about this for a second. There were no other churches to go to. There was no such thing as saying, I don't like this church. I'm going to the next one. It's the exact same church. You following me? This is very, very different than what we got right now, okay? I'm just trying to give you a historical perspective. And at this point, 1,500 years is what percentage of 2,000? Yeah, 75, up to now, 75% of church history is what I've just explained. Would anyone call 75 a majority? Okay, great. Just make sure we're on the same page. But what happened after the Reformation, we had six more traditions of liturgy that blew up, that happened. Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed, Puritan, Anabaptist, and Quaker. And so far, we're still just all over in Europe right now. And really, those four, for the most part, did their worship similar to what had, they'd learned in Roman Catholicism. The thing that they emphasized more was preaching. Preaching was really important. But John Calvin, he wanted, he wanted the Eucharist every week. We need to do it every week. The Anabaptists kind of did their own thing. But the Quakers, man, the Quakers just got off the rails. This guy, George Fox, in the 1700s, he said, yeah, I don't want to do what the Anglican church is doing. Let's go to a room in silence. No one say a word. And then we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit gives you something, speak. And if he doesn't, keep your mouth shut. 
Anybody can speak. And that's the entire liturgy. And then they leave. So, so the Quakers, you know, at this point, uh, the reason they said Quakers is because they felt you, you needed to be able to be in fear and trembling before the Lord, the presence of the Lord. But it's fascinating. I believe God speak to everybody and anybody could hear from God and share the meeting. So that was a new tradition in liturgy. And here's we go to 1700 to the present. I have covered a lot of time. I'm so proud of myself for how fast I've gone without being distracted that I know about. Um, you know that I'm only talking about Western Christianity, by the way. I haven't talked about Africa, India, all these other places, just because that'd be a little bit... This is already too much to do in one message. But I'm just talking about how we got where we're at. About 1700 to present, the last 300 years, most of the, the, the development of how to worship together in the West has happened in the United States. It's been extremely influential globally. And so, so we saw three traditions emerge. One was the Methodists. They're straight out of the Anglicans. And John Wesley, who started that, really wanted to keep worship the same. They have Eucharist every week. But once it got to the frontier, it just didn't, didn't stick. And then the Reformed and Puritan got into this frontier thing. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then much later, about the beginning of the 1900s, the Pentecostals emerged from Wesleyan holiness and, and very influenced by the frontier liturgy. Now, let me show you what I mean by frontier liturgy. And it's an actual te- technical term. So, once it, the, one historian said it this way, that the church of Europe lasted all the way up to the Appalachian Mountains. And so you see the tradition of the church last all the way to these mountains and then past the mountains. Just think about the people who were moving anyway. You know, they're just like, I don't want to be around people. I'm going to conquer a land. You know, I'm going to go meet, do me my thing. And, and so what happened in the 1800s, there were believers who said, we need to bring the gospel out to these pioneers who are all the way out past the Appalachians. And you can only imagine how crazy that was, right? So they would have camp meetings where they'd have people from a huge ge- geographical area come, but there's not that many humans out there. So they would come together and have these meetings, and it was focused on conversion. And so here's the liturgy that they developed in the frontier camp meetings. They would start with musical worship. A lot of it thought it was very important. Then they'd have preaching, which was the centerpiece, and then they'd have a response. And very occasionally they'd have Eucharist. Does this look familiar to anybody? Isn't that wild? So one of the things that's hilarious to me for us Pentecostal charismatics, I've been raised Pentecostal charismatic most of my life, so we say, we don't have any traditions. Yes, we do. It started in 1801 on the frontier, and this is why we do the way we do. Does that make sense? I love it because I feel like I belong somewhere. <laughs> so, how do we worship together? What's the point of me sharing this? The first is a sense of belonging. We have history in the faith. If you ever want to read some crazy stories, read Francis Asbury and his his buddies and what they would do, they'd ride thousands and thousands of miles to hold these camp meetings and giving away their lives. They're a little crazy, actually. In, in, in like Cane Ridge Revival, that's, that's where this camp meeting stuff happens. Stuff that you think would happen in a service, you know, in Toronto was happening in 1805 in, 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 in Kentucky. The other is this, is Perspective. Perspective. And actually, 
I think the appropriate term would be humility. Because notice the way that we worship is 200 years old. What's 200? What percentage of 2,000 is 200? Yeah. Is 10% a majority? Okay, yeah. Now, I love how we worship. I love it. I, I, one historian I read, he said it's so great. He said, um, the, the, uh, the leaders of the frontier meetings were, were like, uh, um, choir directors, but, um, Pentecostal leaders are like jazz directors. <laughs> That's totally it, man. You have a form and then a lot of spontaneity and we just, then we'll come back to the A, a section and play that and call it a day. We have a form, but they're, they're, it's set up for spontaneity. Um, I love it. But, but, we're in a massive minority of how the church has worshipped, historically. Now, here's what's fascinating. Well, do we do it right? That's not a very good question. Have you noticed that? Because we, we can't find evidence of the New Testament church's worship service. How smart is God? How smart is God? He's like... He had to think of something that would be transportable to all cultures of all times forever. <laughs> what? Brilliant. He's brilliant. But here's the challenge I want to issue us. As, as, as we've reflected, even just for this short time, on the way I worship. Maybe you think about, and I think about, the way I like to worship. I'm telling you the guys did not turn off the sound system on purpose because of this message. But I'm sitting there going, Lord, you are so smart for this immersive experience. There have not been, there's not been electronics helping sound probably for more than 30, 40 years. Dave, what, tell me, sound guy. Pretty close, 30, 40 years. So, so when Matt continued to do it, I was so proud of us that we're just moving along. This is what we do. We're here to serve Jesus. Does, does, does how I like it figure into my service to Jesus? See where I'm getting, I'm, I'm messing with this, but this is what I'm asking myself. In fact, yes, we're sons and daughters, but we're still all servants of the Lord. Paul starts his letters by saying, I'm a slave of Jesus. He calls the shots. Does, does a slave usually even get a choice? Okay, I know Jesus says, you're not slaves, you're, you're my brothers and sisters. But you understand what I'm saying. He's running the show. And if Jesus wants to be served a particular way, who am I to criticize it? Oh, man, right? Right? Also, how about this? Do you know there's other churches in Tulsa who worship more like the majority than we do? Have you, like me, thought, man, we're, but we're the only ones that the Holy Spirit lives with? <laughs> now, I was raised in those kind of traditions. I was. And it's not to say that you can meet people far from God in the Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But I'm here to tell you after 20 years in ministry, you can meet people far from God in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. <laughs> we're everywhere. <laughs> I think we need this challenge to, to notice what God is doing other places.
And also maybe to ask ourselves a question, what would, what would the Lord like? Would he want to stretch me out of something that's comfortable to me as I serve him? It's just a thought. I mean, honestly, guys, for us, the most uncomfortable thing we got going today is the air's not working, right? Maybe there's other things going on. But you know what I'm saying? There's something that's beautiful that we meet Jesus in ways we never met him and get to serve him when it's not as comfortable as I'd like it. That making sense? Final thing is this, and I don't know. Yeah. I want to issue a challenge to the younger people among us. And here's a question. How are you going to worship God? How are you going to worship God? Our Lord is so flexible and brilliant and beautiful. He's given us these things. Could you imagine something more creative, more appropriate for your culture, your generation, that would allow you to serve Jesus? I heard a podcast yesterday. It's talking about there's a lot of things not going well in Western culture. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, one economist was saying that we're kind of back to where we were in the 70s in America, where just a brutal time for economics and things like that. He said the one thing that's different is nobody's creative. So much creativity blew out of the 70s uh, in the arts and a number of things. But what if God's waiting for you? Some of the greatest creativity happened in designing worship to serve Jesus. To the people my age and older, 50 plus, can we lay our lives down and our preferences to say, come express yourselves, guys, in ways that I don't understand or find uncomfortable, but I want you to be able to meet Jesus and assemble for the next generation. I think there's almost something a little prophetic about what I'm saying, because I'm inviting all of us into discomfort, but it's for the glory of our Lord. It's, it's for the sustenance of the, the worship of the Lord on the earth beyond our lifetimes. One of the things I would say is I noticed that there's a lot of flexibility, but as we define worship, I noticed at least two things have got to happen while we assemble together. We've got to look at God's glory. That's why we have things like readings of scriptures. That's why we have songs that talk about what God is like. The whole effort is to see God. So, if we're in a service where we never see God, something's going wrong. I I will say this. I love a compliment to a sermon. My fragile ego needs it. But actually, it's not always the best sign that things are going well. If, if If you're left more with, you were such a good teacher, I'm like, darn it. I wonder if we saw Jesus. Sometimes it, it, it's better to just be mediocre. Hallelujah. Make a documentary on that. But we actually say with our worship, we say we want to be good enough not to be noticed and not bad enough to be noticed. We're serving you. We're serving you. And Tim mentioned it here. We're serving you. Jesus is the point. And then we glorify God as we see him. We respond to what we see. It doesn't have to be a deadlift. Sometimes it's hard to see God in the service. You always have memory. What has God done for you in the past? So much of worship is remembering 
That's where we see the glory of God and then reflect and say, God, you're beautiful. So let's stand together. You realize just how sweaty you are now. And this is a prayer that we wrote out of Romans 12.1. We're going to pray that together and then pray for our Oikos maps. And yeah, if we could, I, I just, I just, that challenge. Brian, where are you at? Oh, he's going to the 24-7 conference. There you go. Um, you can pray for us. About seven or eight of us are going to the 24-7 prayer conference in Colorado and are involved with leadership with that. That'll be fun. Catalyzing prayer for churches across the United States will be a lot of fun. Um, yeah. The reason I was going to bring Brian up, I was going to say, hey, if you feel creative about something, come and talk to him. Be patient. Be patient. But we want, we want to dialogue about this. We want to say, Lord, how are you developing this stuff, moving into the next season? I think our nation's in a transition. I think the world's in a transition. How does God want to be worshipped this time? The way we know is from you. That's how we know. That's how we know. So let's pray this out loud together. Father, in response to how much mercy you have given us, help us to offer to you our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. This will be our true and proper worship. Amen. Okay, we're going to finish by praying for those far from God. If this is new to you, oikos, this means your circle of influence. People in your life that are far from God, that we could say this prayer again, is there anything magic in a prayer like this? No, but it's easier to pray together <laughs> if we have it written. So bring to, bring, bring to mind, Lord, what you put in our minds, people that are far from you, in our circle of influence that you want to introduce yourself to, that you're chasing down out of your affection. Okay, let's pray this together. Lord, I pray for the people in my life who are far from you. Deliver them from the evil one Bring them into your family and help them to grow as your disciples. Amen. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week. If you have a white Dodge in the dealership parking lot, they need you to move it right now. So white Dodge in the dealership parking lot. Please.